Well, greetings and welcome to The Divine Line. My name is James White, and we are coming to you uh, as live as we can be coming to you. from. <laughs> we are live. We are live. I'm doing all this myself again, which means I'll probably make a mistake somewhere along the line, but uh, that's how it goes. Uh, we are here in uh, Missouri. Um, by the way... I came this close to looking up the Missouri Department of Transportation. It's not the first time I've been in a situation where they, they divide the highway, and you can choose which direction you're going to go. And I don't think it was the same spot before, but um, I went left, and, you know, there's no exits there and stuff like that. And, you know, the thought crossed my mind, you know, if you have a flat or something like that, uh, you know, so I went right. Oh, my goodness, was that a mistake? It was about eight miles, and the first six and a half were okay, and then all of a sudden they shifted you right. It It is not a passable road. I was down to 15 to 20 miles per hour just to keep from, from disconnecting the RV from my truck. It was that rough. I've never been. Louisiana is infamous for its horrible roads. Missouri took the lead. With that one, I'm going to tell you, if you're with the Missouri Department of Transportation, um, that that's not even a passable road, and you you all should know that. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, I feel better now. <laughs> it, it was bad. It was, it was, I, I wish, I probably do have video of it. Uh, you know, I've got that video thing. I don't know if it's already re, you know, recorded over that or not, but. Um, mm, not, not good stuff. Anyways, so we are here for our 23rd year at Covenant of Grace Church uh, in uh, St. Charles on Muigi Road. And uh, I'm, I've, I've been told that there's lots of new stuff to see. There's two new upstairs bathrooms. Um, new signs because there's a the, the massive amount of road construction outside the church. And so um, that's almost as exciting as when they got rid of the overhead projector there, <laughs> which is in a museum now somewhere. But uh, yes, uh, we'll be uh, with Pastor Van Lees and the folks uh, once again. Um, coming up on a quarter century, I, I sort of figure we really can't go past a quarter century. Um, I figure once you do 25, at that point, just on the level of being merciful, we need to find these folks a much better speaker, uh, someone of a much higher caliber that can talk about a wider range of topics than I can. I, we've 25 years is, should be enough, I think, probably. So anyways, we're here. And then um, this is what's unusual. This is what we haven't done before, but that's what having the RV is about. Um, I'm going to be going to Sedalia, Missouri. Uh, for Wednesday and Thursday evenings, and then in Kansas City, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, before I head home. Long legs on the way home because I need to get home in time, um, taking my granddaughters along with my wife uh, to the Messiah uh, performance of the Phoenix Symphony Orchestra and Choir. And uh, really excited about that, but I've got to get back. So uh, long, long legs ahead as far as that journey is concerned. Uh, and and by the way, just if you're into praying for the the trip and helping to support it and stuff like that, I've got a few issues we're we're dealing with. We're gonna have a repairman out tomorrow morning. We've got a little bit of a leak um, near the hot water heater. Um, it's been cold. This is I actually have the door open right now. This is the warmest I have experienced since I left Phoenix. Uh, we've been, I've had wind chill of 14 and you go from 70 degrees to 14 degrees and it can do stuff to connections, hoses, stuff like that. So we've got a repairman coming out tomorrow morning to work on that. And I also have one of the circuits in the unit, uh, that controls a number of the, uh, plugs, um, receptacles, uh, that is popping. It's, it's kicking off. And we've replaced the GFI unit, and it's something more than that. So I'm not sure if the guy who's going to be repairing that can take a look at that. Um, we'll see. But right now, I'm having to like run an extension cord to make toast and stuff like that. So eh, you don't need any extra um, uh, stuff to be doing when you're on the road. So uh, we, we, we press on. Uh, that's, that's just the way this, uh, this works. 
And, uh, you know, there are people that fly that have to stand for hours and get reaccommodated and stay overnight in a waiting area and end up at hotels and have hot water. So, it, it, you know, if you travel, things happen. That's just actually, if you're at home, things happen, come to think of it, you know, water heater goes out, whatever. Um, it's just sort of how life is. So, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, there are a bunch of, bunches of things that I know I haven't finished up. I, uh, we've got the um, Muhammad Hijab's... Um, and by the way, I, I wrote to Muhammad Hijab and he hasn't responded to me yet. I hope he's not offended or something, but I'd, I'd like to hear from him um, because I'd like to find out if he's coming to the United States, arrange something as far as uh, debates go and things like that. Um, we need to continue with that. And that fits well with my preparation. I need... Uh, it's not easy to do, but I need to really be disciplined in trying to uh, focus upon what's going to be relevant for February. February is only a matter of weeks away. And five debates, um, three of those debates with some of the top people in their field. So, um, yeah. And I'm not feeling overly prepared at this, at this point in time. And uh, it's just because I've got so many other things going on. And um, uh, things at Apologia and, uh, you know, just ministry is ministry. Uh, there's things you got to do. So um, I, I do need to start focusing more upon the things that will be relevant at, at that point. At the same time, there's just so much stuff going on. Uh, I owe Jared Longshore a further response. And I was actually looking at his response article to me. And there's some important stuff to talk about. Uh, you know, all the Moscow mood stuff going on right now. I, I'm sorry, I'm not overly into all that stuff. Um, the Kevin DeYoung article and stuff. I, I will say this. I do need to say this. And I think it is important. Because people just assume, well, you've spoken at Christ Church and you've done all this stuff with him. You're just a, you're just a Muscovite yourself. Well, well, obviously I'm not. Uh, Doug Wilson has not debated anyone more often than me. So we don't hide our differences. And we have these sort of best dialogues. We talk about stuff. And, but there, there's something that, and I'm going to have to say some pretty strong stuff in response to Jared. I think there's some really concerning things that are being said. Um, and in fact, there was a, I hate when this happens. Twitter is great in allowing you to communicate quickly to a large number of people, but trying to go back and find stuff Next to impossible. I saw a quotation. It was credited to Jared Longshore. I didn't save it. At least I don't think I saved it. Now that I think about that, I guess I should go back and look at my screenshots. But I don't think I saved it. To something along the lines of when a Christian, when a married Christian couple have a child, the church grows. And that's... That's where the issue is. The, the, the idea that the promise to your children and to all who are far off, the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, uh, but the, the promises to the children drawn primarily from the Old Covenant um, sort of mean almost a procreational regeneration promise. And I, 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 I need to find that uh, because... Um, like I said, there were some things in the article that I need to respond to, and yeah, so that's not really part of what's coming up in February. It's a bit of a distraction, but I I started the response. And I need to I need to get back to that as well. So lots of things to be doing um, and and getting back to, but one of the things that I did promise to do, uh, and I want to get to today, there's uh, two things. Um, First of all, and by the way, um, there is this is going to be a another distraction that I I can't really avoid being involved with, but I'm going to have to be somewhat hesitant to be fully committed to it. But I believe um, December seventeenth, December seventeenth, the Sunday, so it can't be a Sunday, so it would have to be December eighteenth, I think is the projected date for the release of Jeffrey Johnson's new book, which contrasts philosophical classical theism with biblical classical theism. And this is, 
Um, the, the majority response is going to be mockery, as certain kinds of people tend to do all the time. Um, but this is the distinction that I have been making for quite some time. It, it speaks the exact same thing. What is the origin of your theological formulation? When people talk about philosophy as a handmaid to theology, does the handmaid um, determine what the queen can say? Um, is, is, the, is the fundamental concern um, protecting the philosophical system? Or is it uh, something more than that? Uh, where, where's the origination of your theology? And Jeffrey Johnson has written an excellent book. I reread it on the way out here. Listened to it on the way out here. Uh, there's going to be sections that are going to be hard for people because he gives a lot of background information. Really important stuff like Pseudo-Dionysius, the, the impact that Pseudo-Dionysius had on the development of medieval theology and hence a lot of... Um, philosophical, classical theism cannot be underestimated. The, the impact of Neoplatonism, Pseudo-Dionysus, mysticism, uh, and all these things have to be uh, brought under the scrutiny of the Word of God. Of course, there are some of these folks that would say, you can't. You, you start with philosophy, and that's, that's your foundation, and stuff like that. So anyways, that's going to be coming out, and I highly, highly recommend that people uh, obtain it, and uh, read it, and um, I think it'll be it'll be useful to uh, to folks. Anyway, the two things I want to try to get to today, and I've got to hurry up here. Um, a lot of folks are not aware. I've I've been aware since it happened that Eric Holmberg, who was the um, helped to write and produce, and he was the host of Amazing Grace: The History and Theology of Calvinism, came out a number of years ago now, but was a very popular DVD. Uh, back in the day, um, swam the Tiber River. He swam the eastern portion of the Tiber River, I guess he would say. Um, people who joined the eastern rites that are still under the authority of Rome um, like to emphasize that. I, I remember Stravinskis did in our debate. But uh, became Roman Catholic. And we're seeing lots of folks, I see lots of folks on Twitter, isn't it interesting, I've, I've noticed this for many, many years, when Roman Catholics leave Roman Catholicism, um, they talk about their conversion to Christ and the gospel. Over and over again, I hear people say, I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I never heard the gospel. It was never explained to me in, in any way that would require me to uh, repent and believe and to actually come to Christ, it was always the church, the church, the church, the church, the church. When Protestants become Roman Catholics, what do they talk about? Their conversion to the church, the church, the church, the church. When Roman Catholics become Protestants, conversion to Christ. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a regular. I mean, I see it all the time. And if, if you just watch it and sit back and listen, you, you know, listen to the, the Coming Home Network. Um, and read all the Surprised by Truth volumes. It's, it's always the same thing. It's not a conversion to the gospel. It's a conversion to a church. And uh, so Eric Holmberg has uh, uh, swum the Tiber, and he is answering a question. This was from November 19th. So really? That's his last edited. I think it was before then. Um, uh, I don't see the date here, but it was, it was a little bit before this. It's been at least a month. And uh, he's answering the question, doesn't Rome call Christians a curse to believe they are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? And of course, what that's referring to is the anathemas of the Council of Trent, which was a counter-reformation council, um, which led to the burnings of many uh, Protestants for refusing to embrace the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, uh, transubstantiation, uh, for affirming justification by faith alone through grace alone, grace alone through faith alone, um, that kind of stuff. And uh, 
he provides a response. I just want to just run through it real quick and um, responding to people who've left, who claim they once knew, um, especially individuals like this. I, every time I talk to a former Calvinist uh, who's become a Roman Catholic, I just look him straight in the eye and go, I want to know what would cause someone, because you must understand Rome does not believe that your relationship with God is based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. And normally what happens is it's immediate shutdown. I believe what the successors of Peter teach, and, and you just it's it's immediately to authority, and you just they don't even want to talk about it. They do not want to go there. Because to exchange the righteousness of Christ for the righteousness that Rome offers, which is unquestionably made up of the righteousness of Christ, Mary, the saints, and the righteousness as a result of your own penances and uh, priestly absolutions and everything that goes along with that. You, then you get into indulgences and you get into purgatory and the thesaurus meritorum and uh, it's extremely complicated and the reality is when you stand before a holy god in the final analysis within roman catholicism you stand in a in a multi-patchwork quilt of righteousness it's not the, just the righteousness of christ there's much more that's involved and uh including status pasio and things like that so they don't want to get into that they they don't want to talk about that and, and i understand why I understand why, because that is the essence of, of what you've denied, of what you have said is untrue. And normally they've come to that conclusion through the acceptance of authority arguments. And so they'd much rather be talking about that, even though <laughs> we live in the day of Francis. And I, I, I just don't know why any Roman Catholic, I don't, I don't know why anybody converts today. When all you got to do is look at, Francis, and ask yourself a simple question. Does this man teach and believe what every pope a hundred years ago and, and earlier taught and believed? And the answer is, no, he does not. No, 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 no. And he is making fundamental changes in the system. Now, I'm he hearing he's not well. Um, you know, I've always speculated that he might go ahead and, and resign uh, at some point. But if he just up up and croaks he has already made the preparations for changing how his successor is chosen and packing the college of cardinals and and locking the roman church into a a direction uh, that it's going to continue to go uh to affirm his perspective on things and that's um that's a big thing that's that's huge it really is uh, so anyway, um, back to Eric Holmberg here. Um, he says, first, while Rome is technically right because it's where the seat of Peter resides, tell Cyprian that. I know you and most Protestants, particularly Reformed variety, use it, and other words like papist as a pejorative. No, it's just identification of the Roman Catholic system. Uh, certainly reject its claims, but... So instead of Rome, let's just say, according to the apostolic faith as expressed by Rome, Peter, Antioch, Peter again, Alexandria, Mark, Jerusalem, James, Constantinople, Andrew, and 99% of the Catholic Orthodox world. Okay, that's an argument of authority. And it's historically laughable. It truly is. I mean, <laughs> this is assuming so many things that you cannot even begin to prove. I mean, it's it's picking and choosing, well, I'm going to take what this person said and that person said, I'm going to put it all together here and have this wonderful foundation of authority. Um, it, it doesn't work. There are so many contradictions in trying to put these things together between Constantinople, Andrew, Constantinople, you can prove this? Well, this person said this and that person, what the, <laughs> if you just, you know, maybe read a lot in the early church fathers, you'll keep running across all sorts of stuff that you go, really interesting.
Uh, where'd that come from? Um, anyways, uh, but you'll perhaps be surprised to know that they would have no problem with your formula as long as it was properly exegeted and understood. In other words, as long as it's properly redefined. <laughs> as long as it's not uh, in the context of the Reformation and what sola gratia meant over against the saints, over against uh, the mass, over against Mary. And, and as long as it's, it's not dealing with what sola fide means in the sense of the nature of faith, deadness of man and sin, the sacramental system of Rome, you know, if we can put all that stuff aside, then yeah, we can, we can, we can say that. So for, he says, for sure, it's all sola gratia. Again, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, someone who ostensibly knew about the Reformation wouldn't recognize that the central issue of the Reformation was not the necessity of grace. It was the sufficiency of grace. And I remember banging that drum in 1999 in response to Norman Geisler, who, while on the Bible Answer Man program, was talking about, well, Rome believes with us in the necessity of grace. Not even an issue. That, that wasn't the issue then. It's not the issue now. Um, it is the sufficiency of grace, not the necessity of grace. Um, and by the way, even though you didn't mention it, it's also Soli Deo Gloria all the way, baby. Oh. I'm sorry, you don't believe that, Eric. Every time you light a candle to Mary, you don't believe that. You are giving clear evidence. Have you read the glories of Mary? Do you agree with it? You cannot say Soli Deo Gloria and believe that book. Don't even, do not be self-deceived. You can't do it. It, it, it's impossible. You should know that. Um, God is beyond being and glorification, as he is the essence, fountain of being and glory, along with wisdom, perfection, love, righteousness, etc., in, of, and through himself. For a creature to magnify or glorify God is as ridiculous as me standing on the rim of a supernova, holding up a pen light and saying, here, let me shine some light onto the situation, which is absurd, uh, because what does heavenly worship do? I was just preaching on Thanksgiving in Amarillo and at Apologia a few weeks before that, and going through the phrases that are used by the, the elders and the living creatures and, and the worship of God in heaven. And that's exactly what they're doing. Glory and honor and power and might and thanksgiving. And they're not they're not staying there with a pen light. It's, it's not ridiculous. It's biblical. Irenaeus' solution to the conundrum of how to glorify being itself who is already glory itself is found in his famous aphorism, the glory of God is man fully alive. What if God's being glorified by creatures that aren't men? As in heaven, as scripture says. That's the difference between defining these things by scripture and defining these things by Irenaeus. Um, you can substitute fully divinized for fully alive. So there we're going to get a little theosis thrown in there. And you can add to that Athanasius is on the incarnation observation for the sons of God became man so that we might become God, more theosis, not God ontologically, that would be absurd. The creator-creature distinction is eternal and mutable. We would ever remain creatures. We exist through the word of his power. But God, God created man to be his perfect icon, more Eastern stuff, and then become one of us to redeem and make whole the shattered icon. And that restored icon would gradually be divinized to the point where some of us, those who pass all the trials and tests of life, oh, not those who are imputed with the righteousness of Christ, can be exalted to a position of ruling and reigning with him in the eschaton, judging even the angels, even though that's actually said of everyone who is in Christ. As for Solus Christus, that's fine too, as long as one understands that Christ alone is established and alone with the Holy Spirit and power is a salvific matrix in which redeemed humans in a reciprocal process of divinization play a very real part. In other words, the sacraments. So in other words, no, we don't believe in Solus Christus. Uh, we believe that Christ's um, salvific power is mediated through the sacraments of the church. Uh, and of course, there's, there's going to be this Eastern spin to stuff, which, again, might leave a lot of people going, what's he talking about? But it's it's just an emphasis. It's just a, it's a mindset um, that a lot of 
Western Roman Catholics don't have. Uh, but it's there. Um, even as a Protestant, you should be able to grasp this, although I know it's very hard because it sounds so gulp, freaking Catholic. No, it sounds primarily Orthodox at this point. Otherwise, uh, if it's just the God-man, Jesus, all by his lonesome that saves people, why bother preaching the gospel, evangelizing, or praying for people? Th again, this is where you go, you, you produced an, an entire documentary that you've already forgotten what it said? What, what is it about conversion that makes converts completely incapable of any longer properly enunciating what they say they once believed? It is an amazing consistency. Uh, it's just, it's just wowzers. Um, and then what's going on with having a ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.18 or filling up what is lacking the sufferings of Christ? Completely different context, Colossians 1.24. See also Daniel 12, noting especially those who receive a special award, shine like the stars forever, for turning many to righteousness. Oh, so God ordains the ends as well as the means. Shocking, 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 shocking. Uh, lastly, there's sola fide. That can be okay as well. Oh, can't. As long as the fide isn't neutered by Gnostic leaven. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, was raised from the dead, and is Lord, and this special knowledge, Gnosis, thereby saves me. <laughs> Again, listening to converts is, is just amazing. You, you, you're just like, where, did, where are you getting this stuff? Um... And then, then they always say, well, I wasn't necessarily talking about your particular... Well, you were allegedly a part of this group. And you know what we believe about saving faith. It's not Gnostic and things like that. Uh, the Gospel Coalition uh, got three of the four parts of Salvus Fide right. The facts, noticia, comprehension of the facts, a census, and the trust in the facts, fiducia. What they completely left out is the fourth and last part, clearly and dogmatically expressed by the brother either stepbrother or cousin of the Lord Jesus, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also, James 2.26. Oh, we're going to go to James 2. Stunning. Um, uh, maybe I'll... I'm not sure I'll have time to link to one of the many, many, many places uh, we've de dealt with James chapter 2. God who justifies, I think the chapter is 32, 34 pages long, something like that. Um... And no, he, Eric never contacted me with any questions about his conversion. That, that doesn't happen very often, other than the guy who ended up uh, running the Drunken Ex-Pastors podcast. Uh, you might know Luther understood the implications of this verse, which is why he called James an epistle of straw, and for a time wanted it stricken from the canon. But then he did what Protestants always do when the plain reading of a verse contradicts their interpretive grid. He tilted his head sideways, dimmed the light, squinted, and found a way for 2 plus 2 to equal 5. Well, Eric, I would challenge you. Um, to actually respond to my chapter on James chapter 2. It's, I'm, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said by many of the Westminster divines and everything else, but it's uh, exegetically argued, and I have had nobody offer any consistent response to it that did not involve a fundamental rejection of sola scriptura. In other words, well, okay, yeah, you, you, look, you were just looking at scripture. You need to have this other stuff to throw in there. Um, if you, th if you actually believe this, and if you think that that's what we're doing, then I would challenge you to read the chapter and respond to it. I think that would be a good idea. My favorite example of this, one of the many verses that ultimately pulled the plug on the lifeboat I helped to inflate with the documentary uh, Amazing Grace, History, and Theology of Calvin, that the lifeboat that you helped to inflate, you did, you did a documentary and you think you're responsible for Reformed theology? Sir, the arrogance is astonishing. It's astonishing. I can't count the number of people. I've introduced Reformed theology with my books, but I would never in a million years think that somehow my introducing people to something was uh, creating a lifeboat or something. What are you... First uh, Timothy 2, 1 through 4. The Calvinist, whatever God desires, he accomplishes, but clearly not all people, including kings and all those who are in high positions, get saved. Shoot, of those in the latter category, most blow hell wide open. So heads tilt, light dims, eyes squint. Clearly ju God just means he just wants to save some of the people in each and every category. Nation, tribe, and tongue, Revelation 7, 9. Uh-huh, right. 
Um, hey, at least he is aware that there is a reformed response. He cannot honestly refute it. And so he has to misrepresent it. Shame on you, sir. Shame on you. Why is why is why does conversion create such dishonesty? I mean, I know the text well. I've debated it more than more than once, and it's interesting you didn't include all of it that needs to be included. Is Jesus interceding? See, you don't you don't have Jesus interceding anymore because you don't have a finished work. You can't even deal with these texts anymore. How dare you even try to mock these things when you've embraced a system that doesn't even have a finished work upon which to even have a meaningful conversation? Jesus is pictured as interceding in this text. Who's he interceding for? And on what grounds? An imperfect, incompleted, oft-repeated representation of a sacrifice that perfects nobody? You've answered all these things? Hmm, wonder. So yes, salvus fide is fine as long as noticia sensus fiducia and opera caritatis, works of charity, which are the necessary grace-empowered fruit of saving faith, are in place and fully operational, which is just another way of saying not what Reformed people are saying, but of saying the sacraments are the necessary means of salvation. Um, hallelujah! Can you see how close... We are to attain the oneness that Jesus prayed for in John 17, 21-23. No, sir, we cannot because we are honestly representing the positions and you are not. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. Um, then it goes on to talk about um, Council of Trent a little bit. Um, but wait, there is one other matter that comes into play here. While you didn't say it, I know you and your worldview enough, in part because I once shared it, and if I recall, helped form it in your life. What well, that is, that is could be a weight you're going to have to carry. Because if you cannot accurately represent it while you're now denying it, wow, uh, that that's amazing. To know what was implicit in your formula, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, also means that once salvation has taken place, that person possesses the righteousness of Christ, and can never lose it. Come hell or high water, they are heaven-bound. You were once reformed. And yet now when you talk about the perseverance of the saints, you don't talk about it Christologically. You don't talk about it as a union with Christ. You don't talk about it on the basis of imputed righteousness of Christ. You talk about it as the IFB, once saved, always saved. <laughs> I'm sorry. I either laugh or get mad because it's just disgusting. It is simply disgusting. Why can't you be honest? I, I'm just, I, wow. Yikes, yikes, yikes. And there, along with Sola Scriptura, the ancient apostolic faith and the protest revolt, definitely part company. <laughs> Always, uh, you know, I, I, think they, I think they get little ancient apostolic faith pillows they cuddle up with at night. So they don't actually have to read the early church fathers and realize how much disagreement there was. Especially, especially the fact that so much of what they believe is dogma wasn't even conceived of by the early church, but but it was the ancient apostolic faith. So yes, the Council of Trent did call out the idea that salvation could be obtained outside the formula I just described above, and further, once true salvation was experienced, it could not be lost due to the apostasy of the believer as grave errors that could potentially damn souls. I think it, I think it could be. I mean, Rome, Rome clearly believes that you can lose the state of grace. But you're wrong to say it, Trent, cursed or damned to hell anybody. That is a common Protestant misconception. One of the many they circulate among themselves, I'm guilty as charged, and used to bludgeon Catholics as well as to help encourage themselves they are right and those poor Catholics and Orthodox are wrong. That's a story for another day. So you don't believe that the anathemas of Trent resulted in, in anyone maybe like being burned at the stake in the years after Trent? Anywhere? I don't know what church history you're reading, but... It, it, it's not it's not good stuff so it's sad honestly to see uh these folks um saying these things because it's just they're indefensible they're indefensible okay 25 minutes uh one of the things i said that i was gonna deal with shifting gears here uh one of the things i said i was gonna deal with was um a uh, article it's a brief article uh that i i made reference to uh, a while ago um, by Joel Beakey. 
and it's practical reasons for retaining the KJV. Okay, so I just want to go through these and I want to provide practical responses uh, to the things that are said here. Uh, Joel Beakey's a wonderful man who's done great things to the church. Uh, I just think on this issue, uh, there's another side. Man, those things are fizzy. Mm. Fizzy, the, the sparkling ice stuff, orange mango. It's really good, but it's fizzy, 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 fizzy. Okay. Here are 12 practical reasons for retaining the King James Version of the Bible. Number one, the standard text of the English Bible, it is wiser to choose the known over against the unknown. Uh, would that have been the case with the King James and the Geneva Bible? Maybe. Uh, the weaknesses and disadvantages of a particular version of the Bible cannot really be assessed apart from a thorough trial of daily usage over several years. Many who welcome the NIV, it was great enthusiasm when it first appeared in 73, are now prepared to admit its serious weaknesses as a translation. Well, that's true. The KJV is well established in the marketplace and in the literature of Christian scholarship. It will continue in production for years to come. Helps and references, reference works are commonly available. It's not like the KJV will fade from view and disappear, as have many versions that were expected to supplant it. Likewise, the KJV is widely studied and commented on the literature of biblical scholarship. Not so much today. It will always be a standard of reference and comparison for Bible commentators. All other versions are compared to it, contrasted with it, tested by it. Campaign seller versions must attack it or else claim that a particular new version is just like it. The same cannot be said of any other Bible version. Well, um, there's lots of stuff out there in the King James, mainly because it's free. Um, that is not a reason that the King James translators would ever have given. Ever have given. In fact, I think that goes against the spirit of the introduction of the, the preface to the readers from the King James. Uh, I don't think that, that would ever have crossed their mind as being a valid, uh, valid reason. Uh, to keep in use a translation that is over 400 years old. Um, I don't think they would have viewed it that way. Number two, based on the full text of the Hebrew and Greek originals. Based on the Masoretic text, Hebrew Old Testament, well, the 1525 Blomberg, not the current Biblia Hebraica Studicartensium, and the Textus Receptus, based on a dozen manuscripts, two dozen manuscripts, the KJV gives the most authentic and fullest available text of the scriptures. Not sure how you even substantiate that. With none of the many omissions and textual rewrites of modern translations such as the RSV and the NIV. Um, that, that's not the issue. And, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Behe knows that. The issue is the underlying text. And the issue is we have uh, so much more information about especially the New Testament than they had that to ignore that is to, again, go against the spirit of the King James translators themselves. The reader may suppose that such is not the case with the ESV. However, the, the publishers plainly state the ESV is adapted from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Well, the, again, every version needs to be examined on, on its own basis and the faithfulness that it shows to its underlying texts. Um, but it says, those who remember the RSV can attest that few other versions made greater use of the methods and findings of higher criticism. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Now, that's just not fair. This is... This is where I'm really, really surprised because Dr. Beakey wouldn't do this in dealing with the Puritans and things like that. But when it comes to Bible translations, all of a sudden, oh, higher criticism. Show where they show where they use it. Show where they their translation is impacted by an inappropriate acceptance of unbelieving, quote unquote, higher criticism. Form criticism, source criticism. Be specific. This is the vague thing that unfortunately, marks most King James-onlyism and things like that. Oh, higher criticism. I, I, I reject higher criticism too, but I know why I reject higher criticism. Um, and so, you know, a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So that means that conservative modern translations um, that are more conservative than even the King James translators might have been, I mean, they were Anglicans after all, uh, that would make it better than the King James? Uh, doesn't sound like that would follow. Um... Then under two, you have A, oldest does not mean best. The Westcott and Hort arguments that the oldest manuscripts are the most reliable and age carries more weight than volume are not necessarily true. It could well be that the two oldest complete manuscripts were found to be in such unusually excellent condition because they were already recognized as faulty manuscripts in their time and therefore were placed aside and not recopied until worn out, as were the reliable manuscripts. This is further supported by numerous existing differences between the Vatican and Sinaitic manuscripts. This is argumentation that is 100 years out of date. I am stunned 
that anyone repeats a day. I really, really am. I, I, I just got to be really honest with you. I am stunned that anyone does this. We are not following Westcott and Hort today. We are not following Vatican, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus slavishly like they did. The papyri have been discovered since then. Hello! It just revolutionizes everything. Um, I, I just, this, this is straight out of the debates in the 1880s. It has no place in 2023. None. I don't understand why anybody would date their arguments and make them so weak like this as to ignore everything that's happened um, over, over the, the time period since then. I, I really, really don't. Um, to be the King James Version New Testament is based upon the traditional text, sometimes called the ecclesiastical or majority text, the vast majority of the more than 5,000 known partial and complete Greek manuscripts follow this textual reading. It's just not true. It's just not true, Dr. Beagie. This is not the translation of the majority text. The TR represents a late uh, stream in the Byzantine manuscripts. It has numerous unique readings that are clearly not representational of the general Byzantine family. Um, it's, it's, it's not based upon the traditional text. It's based upon a text that Erasmus whipped together um, as quickly as he could, which included back-translating from his own Latin translation into Greek at the end of the book of Revelation. Um, so this is just, you know, the vast majority of the more than 5,000 known partial and complete Greek manuscripts follow this textual reading. So that I, I'm assuming that this must mean that Dr. Beakey would agree that the King James is in need of fundamental editing in the book of Revelation, Revelation 16.5, um, the end of Revelation, in Ephesians 3.9, um, all, all these texts where there's clear problems with the text is receptus. So we would agree that those, those need to be changed, right? I don't see anything. Um, uh, 2C. The received text has been used by the Christian church throughout history. The church of the Reformation all used Bibles based on the traditional text. For example, the uh, Dutch Statenvertalung, uh, produced by or the Synod of Dort, is based upon the ecclesiastical text. No, it's based upon what was available at the time. This is, this is again, very frustrating. I, I, I would think that the people in Dr. Beaky's position would do some reading and, and recognize that... Um, just, just quickly, as an example, I was talking with a student about this while driving yesterday. The um, situation with Revelation in Erasmus. And uh, I, by the way, I was told, I don't know, about a month and a half ago that some people were having a wonderful time mocking my stupidity because instead of saying the Aldine edition, I said the Aline edition. I was running with no notes off the top of my head and not a single one of you people who think you are so smart would be able to tell me anything about the Sa'ana manuscripts of the Quran. You wouldn't be able to tell me anything about document history of the church, the Mormon church. You've not read almost anything in Jehovah's Witnesses. And you've got your one little area. And I misremember all dying as all line. And oh, we're right. See, pathetic, pathetic. But point is, I've always wondered, and I've talked about this before, why didn't Erasmus fix Revelation? Because we know he only had one manuscript. It wasn't even a manuscript. It's commentary in Latin. He had to extract the Greek from the Latin. And it didn't have the last pages. And it, it, it was all sorts of mistakes were made in the process. He had many years before 1535 to fix Revelation. A, he didn't care. He did not respect the book of Revelation. He did not respect it at all. Um... Do with that as you will, but he did not respect the book of Revelation. Secondly, before his second edition, he told the printer, go get the Aldine edition, which he had just come out, which he was aware of. Go get that. Use their, revel their text revelation. Replace mine. Just get rid of mine. Use theirs. We'll go from there. And that was it. He figured that's taken care of. And literally for 300 years, most people didn't know what had happened. What happened was the Aldine edition had used Erasmus's edition of the Book of Revelation. And 
hence his back translation is part of the TR. There's history to all of these things. And you couldn't just, you, they did not have the information we have today. They did not have any way of identifying manuscripts and making sure they weren't talking about the same manuscript or they're talking about different manuscripts. Uh, that's why Beza had the confusion with his his with Stephanus's Beta manuscript. That was actually Codex uh, Codex D, Codex Beza Canterbrigensis. He didn't know that they, that influences Beza. There's all sorts of stuff that is available historically that just gets. You know, the Church of the Reformation all used Bibles based on the traditional text. They all used Bibles based upon the few manuscripts that had been put together and printed by Erasmus and Stephanus and Beza. That was not a church-wide uh, effort to analyze, to study. There was nothing like that. There were too many wars going on for things like that to happen. So it, it, is, it is pretense. It really is pretense to say, well, there's a traditional text and it was determined by the church and all the rest of it. It's just not true. It's just not true. You can't, you can't prove it. You can't back it up. Number three, a more faithful method of translation. The King James translators employ the method of verbal equivalence, word for word, rather than a method of paraphrase and iambic equivalence used in the NIV. The result is the KJV presents what biblical authors wrote, not what a translator committee thinks they meant. Well, again, that's really nice if you're just picking on uh, non-formal dynamic equivalency translations like the NIV, but the fact of the matter is I can point you and did in my book written in 1994 uh, to numerous places where the King James does not use a formal translation where modern translations do. Every translation is a mixture. And so I like formal equivalency. That's why I like the LSB. Um, but comparing it to the NIV is that, well, we'll just compare it to one of the most uh, dynamic translations. Well, com let's compare apples with apples. Number four, a more honest translation. The text of KJV uses italics to identify every word or phrase interpolated, supplied by the translator, and not given in the original. Such a practice could not be followed in the NIV because of its meaning for meaning approach. Well, again, what's this with the NIV? Um, th there's, there's, you know, you can argue that using old English pronouns because they rec represent singulars and plurals makes it superior. Uh, some, you know, it is nice to be able to know, um, but it also makes it impossible to read in many public situations. So, so what? This is all based on going after the NI NIV, which I think is somewhat uh, misleading. A more precise idiom. Often attacked this very point, the KGV actually is a more accurate and helpful translation precisely because of the archaic pronouns. There it is. Uh, thou, the both Hebrew and Greek distinguish clear between the second person. Okay, so that's exactly what we were just talking about. So, uses uh, archaic words that we can tell. Well, if you study enough, you can tell that they are plurals or singulars. A lot of people don't even know that. They don't even know that's aware, aware of that. Um, but that just means that it's no longer written in the language that we speak, which again, the King James translators would not have, I don't think they would have agreed with that. Uh, number six, the best liturgical version. The KJV excels as a version for public worship. That is why it's been used so widely in the churches. The requirements of the sanctuary are not those of the classroom. Students might uh, read several versions, ancient, modern, but none surpasses the KJV as a liturgical version that is adapted to the needs and circumstances of public worship. What does that exactly mean? Public worship for who? This is very American. Um, public worship for who? Not somebody who, for whose English is a second language. Um, not outside the outside of English speaking areas. Uh, and I'm not talking about just well, of course, I'm not talking about using it. Actually, most King James preferred folks do think that translations done overseas should be based on the TR. I don't know what Vicky's position on that is, but I bet you dollars donuts. That he would say that it does. Um, but adapted to the needs and circumstances of public worship. That, that is so vague. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Um, I find the LSB and the ESV to be perfectly adapted to public worship. Because that's what the people are carrying. That's what they're reading and as long as it communicates clearly. Uh, the best format for preaching. The KJV traditionally has been laid out verse by verse on the page rather than in paragraphs. 
though for most of the text, paragraphs were indicated by the pilcrow or paragraph mark. The Hebrew and Greek texts, of course, have no paragraphing at all. The verse-by-verse -verse format serves best, best serves the purpose of verse-by-verse -verse consecutive expository sermonizing and Bible study. Really? You can get you can get the LSB or the ESV in all those forms, either paragraph or non-paragraph, verse-by-verse. I, I'm sorry. I, I just find that to be really picky. Um, uh, the most beautiful translation. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to read it. Um, the most beautiful. If you're raised in the LSB, you won't think it's the most beautiful. If you're raised in the NIV, you won't think it's the most beautiful. Purely subjective. Purely subjective. An ecumenical text for Reformed Christians. No other version has been used so widely among English-speaking Christians. The KJV is used by preference in many conservative Reformed congregations. The KJV is also used in the Christian schools. These churches sponsor. Using the KJV is one way to underscore our unity and identity with other conservative evangelical and Reformed Christians. How about we just all use the ESV? Would that also not show the same thing? I would prefer the LSB. Would that not also show the same thing? Well, it's what we've used before. That's not a sign of unity. Um, the Mormons use it. Is that a sign of unity? A version that sounds like the Bible. More than any other version, the KJV sounds like the Word of God, even to unbelievers. So what sounded like the Word of God prior to the King James? Was it the Geneva Bible then? Um, did, did the Vulgate sound like the Word of God? Uh, for 1,100 years it did, didn't it? What does that even mean? It, it, it is so subjective that I... I, 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 I Number 11, the character of the translators. Okay, they were... The 50-minute point to translate the King James Version were not only well-known scholars, but also sound in the Christian faith. No matter what differences there were among them, they all regard everywhere the Bible is inspired by God. They all affirm the central doctrines of true scripture. Some modern versions are produced by translators whose qualifications are merely academic, and in some cases their identity is withheld from the reading public. Well, it's not the case with the LSB or ESV. Are you accusing them of being closeted heretics? Um, you know, they were high churchmen. Uh, they're... Okay, great. But they never made that argument for themselves, did they? That's not how that's not how they defended the King James in their day. In fact, they said a lot of things that I think very plainly and fairly uh, people could read them and go, yeah, they don't they they really would not have supported this kind of use of their translation this far down the road. Uh, a Bible for those who walk in the old paths. Um, Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Of course, that has to do with God's truths. It has nothing to do with Bible translations in English. Um, I just did that. I was just very disappointed. I um, Look, if a church wants to use King James, that's up to the church to decide. But let's at least be honest about what the reasons are. And uh, the reasons here, the reasons here were not, uh, were not solid uh, at all. And here's what I would say in response. Um, read the preface to the King James Version that the King James translators wrote and then apply their words. They said it should be in the language of the people. They should have said it should be like the fresh bread uh, straight from the oven. Uh, the King James is not fresh bread straight from the oven. And in our modern context, um, our young people are going to be going out and they're going to be going into the world. They're going to be running into the disciples of Barterman and they are going to be getting hit with all sorts of things about the Kami Johannium, uh, the Percipe Adulterae, um, the longer ending of Mark, and they need to know the, the real foundation we have for being able to trust the scriptures as the word of God. And 
the King James is just simply horrifically out of date in being able to give a defense of its particular and peculiar readings. And so I, I just, I, I just put the, put the, all the subjectivity and the feelings aside. Um, what translation is going to allow your people to bring the word of God to bear on all the issues of today? Um, homosexuality. The, the King James translation is so old that the language that it uses for all sorts of ethical and moral issues is no longer used in our society at all. And is, in fact, is subject to misinterpretation and confusion. So why saddle someone with that? At the very least, you could use the New King James. If you, if, and if, again, I don't know why anyone would purposefully choose to use a translation um, that does not reflect the best that God has provided to us in regards to historical evidence, manuscripts, and, and provide the greatest defensibility. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, but there you go. Uh, that's, that's what's happening. And, and it's amongst reform folks and it shouldn't be it, this. We, we shouldn't have this issue. Um, we shouldn't have this traditionalism. And one thing I've noticed is this topic is very often connected to other traditionalistic beliefs that reform people tend to glom onto but that are not that they they're not exegetically derived using the same methodologies we use to defend the trinity deity of christ resurrection justification by faith things like that um but you know it just seems to me reform folks do have a tendency to grab hold of stuff and because it makes them look different or more truly reformed they grab hold of it and they hold on to it and it's um not necessarily useful or helpful to be perfectly honest with you i think we should stay focused upon the stuff that will allow us to be salt and light in a uh, rapidly darkening culture so anyway uh, so with that, I want to thank you for listening. I I don't know exactly how we're going to get another program in. We're going to we're going to do our best to do so, but again, we're having to work around repair guys coming to work on stuff. Um, and uh, please pray for the conference starting Friday night, especially Saturday. The afternoon session on Saturdays for 23 years has been a killer. It's tough. It's hard uh, on them and on me, but we will uh, we will do it again. And then for uh, a lot of stuff going on next week in Sedalia and Kansas City uh, before I get home and get to see my kitties who knocked over the Christmas tree. Um, I'm blaming Deanie. Um, cute little booger. He's not yet six months old. Uh, I just don't think Sophie... That's I don't see Sophie doing that. Uh, she's two and a half, and, and I think he was framing her. I really do. <laughs> so Anyway, before I get to get home and uh, go to the Messiah with my granddaughters and and all the rest of that neat, fun stuff. So pray for us as we travel. Uh, appreciate you being with us uh, today on the program. And we will see you next time on The Dividing Line, as long as I make sure to press all the right buttons.